This is a topic which we find in many different traditions of uh, Tibetan Buddhism. Derives from India. And uh, specifically, we're looking at the uh, tradition that's found in the Galuk lineage. And it is known as the Galuk Hargyu tradition of Mahamudra, which is perhaps a bit of a surprising name. Now, the word Kargyu means a lineage of the, should we say, the enlightening words of a Buddha. And so there are some commentators who say that, well, the title here doesn't really mean the Kargyu tradition, it actually means the Mahamudra tradition of the enlightening words of the Buddha that are found in the Galuk tradition. So they want to put Kargyu aside here as a, referring to the actual Kargyu tradition. But His Holiness the Dalai Lama disagrees with this, following other commentators. The text was written by the first pension lama, and uh, the first pension lama wrote his own commentary to it. And in this uh, auto-commentary, we would call it, the first pension lama quotes extensively from Kargyu masters, so it's quite clear that he is drawing on the Kargyu tradition. Moreover, the first pension lama was the tutor of the fifth Dalai Lama and was undoubtedly the architect behind the whole policy of the fifth Dalai Lama to bring peace to Tibet after 150 years of civil war and bring harmony among all the different traditions of Tibetan Buddhism. And so, it uh, 
makes perfect sense from Pension Lama's own commentary and from the type of work that he was doing that he is bringing together Kargyu and Galupa tradition here. But Penchen Lama makes it very clear that he's not making this up. He says this very clearly in his beginning lines that uh, these teachings come in a lineage from Tsongkhapa, the founder of the Galuk tradition. But he's only writing it down for the first time up until then, from the time of Tsongkhapa to his time, which is about 200 years. He, uh, I mean, this tradition was just an oral tradition. Now, you have to bear in mind that Tsongkhapa studied with teachers from all the different traditions that were available at his time. So he had Kargyu teachers and Sakya teachers, Nyingma teachers, teachers who had the various Kadampa lineages as well. And so, regarding Mahamudra, he had the what's called the distant lineage that comes all the way from Buddha through the line of Kargyulamas. But it wasn't limited only to Kargyu. We also find Mahamudra in the Sakya lineage as well. But Tsongkhapa also has the what's called the near lineage. I mean, uh, Lama refers to the near lineage, and this is the lineage that comes from a vision that Tsongkhapa had of Manjushri. Now, what an actual vision is and what happens during the vision, I must say I really don't know. But uh, in any case, Tsongkhapa had a very profound vision of uh, Manjushri, who gave him many teachings, of course, but particularly I think what's most significant is that Manjushri gave him a very clear indication of where to look in the Indian sources to get the most profound 
understanding of voidness. And Tsongkhapa was a great revolutionary, I think that's the proper word for him. Because he completely reinterpreted most of the teachings that uh, uh, were going on in Tibet up until that time. Yeah, that's a very interesting phenomenon if you think about it. Because uh, Tsongkhapa, like uh, every great uh, Tibetan Lama, puts a great deal of emphasis on entrusting oneself to the spiritual teacher, which is usually called Lama uh, Guru devotion. И действительно это очень интересное явление, поскольку в тибетском буддизме и ламой сонгапой также делается ключевой такой огромный акцент на вверении себя, на почтении, на поклонении духовному наставнику, тому, что именуется гуру дивоушен, да, поклонением гуру или поклонением ламе. So one would think that a disciple could not disagree with his or her teacher, particularly concerning the teachings and how to understand the teachings. И, наверное, следует понимать это так, что ученику не должно противоречить, как не соглашаться перечить своему учителю, также и в контексте того, в контексте содержания учения, да, того, что чему учит его учитель than their teachers. Uh, one great example is Atisha with uh, his d- teacher Dharma Mati in uh, Sumatra who held the Chittamatra view and Atisha held the Madhyamaka view. But disagreeing with uh, one's teacher concerning such points doesn't mean disrespect for the teacher. Но несогласие с учителем в этих философских моментах, в моментах воззрения, никоим образом не означает непочтение к учителю, или пренебрежение учителя. И сам Атиша и Лама Сонгкапа, они во многом полагались на своих учителей и получили огромный объем знаний, многому научились у них, безусловно. Но, you know, the whole tradition of 
Buddhism, the way that it's practiced in Tibet, follows the tradition from Nalanda Monastery in India, which uses debate and logic. So if one can show logical inconsistencies in somebody else's thinking, even if it's your own teacher, then according to what Buddha himself said, one must accept the consequences of logic. And that's not disrespectful. And from another point of view, different people have different meditational experiences. And so there's no reason why everybody's meditational experience should be exactly the same. So no matter how close we might be to our spiritual teacher, that doesn't mean that our own individual spiritual meditational practice is going to be an exact replica of that of our teachers. We are, after all, different mental continuums, and we've had different separate previous lives. So, what did Tsongkhapa do or add to this Mahamudra tradition that he received from his Kargyalamas? And Panchen Lama makes it very clear in his text. When we talk about Mahamudra, we're speaking about meditation on the nature of the mind. And as with any phenomenon, we can speak about the conventional or superficial nature of what mind is, and we can speak about the deepest nature. The superficial nature of something is what does it appear to be? And it's superficial in the sense that it's the surface appearance, and as the both the Sanskrit and Tibetan word implies, it hides something deeper underneath. 
например, относительным или поверхностным, потому что это действительно то, что лежит на поверхности при первом контакте с явлением, это то, что доступно нашему восприятию. И как и в тибетском, так и в санскрите, так и в русском, поверхность не подразумевает нахождение чего-то более глубокого, действительно сущностного входа, некой иной скрытой природы. And what it conceals or hides is the deepest nature, and the deepest nature is how something actually exists. In other words, voidness. And, and void, voidness is referring to it being its way of existing is devoid of impossible ways. И в данном случае пустотность или пустота означает отсутствие в а, этом предмете невозможных способов существования. And everybody agrees on that. И все согласны с этим. But what people disagree on is what are the impossible ways that things are devoid of existing as. So what uh, Sonkapa does in his uh, interpretation of Mahamudra is that he accepts and follows the traditional Kagyu methods for being able to meditate, recognize and meditate on the superficial or conventional nature of the mind. But then he introduces his own way of meditating on the deepest nature of the mind as it was indicated to him by Manjushri to follow from the uh, Indian sources of Gurupalita. No, we have a traditional Kagyu method of meditating on the conventional or supernature, superficial nature of the mind and the Galupa method of meditating on voidness of the mind and this is why it's known as the Gelu Kagyu tradition of Mahamudra. This is not the only example of this type of combined tradition. We also find this within the Kagyu traditions in which we have combined 
Махамуджа Дзокчен type of practices. Мы находим этот подобный способ комбинирования учений и в некоторых практиках циклах Кагю, где Махамуджа комбинируется с Дзокчен. So, for instance, uh, a great Kagyu master called Karma Chakme uh, introduced a system in which one meditates in the Mahamudra style up to a certain point, and then for the final stages, one follows a traditional Nyingma Dzogchen approach. В или или в манере Махамуды, известной в школе Кагью, на нескольких этапах, вплоть до самых последних, завершающих, когда он переходит на медитацию традиции Нима, старой школы Дзокчен, и достигает результата плода с помощью этой медитации. Now, one might start to question this whole method of uh, combining various different uh, traditions in light of a statement that His Holiness the Dalai Lama makes very strongly, which is that we shouldn't mix practices together. But His Holiness explains that mixing actually means to adulterate, and what that means is to put everything all together into one big soup. <laughs> Adulterate is like putting milk water into the milk. It's a water down. <laughs> Uh, make everything into a soup. Mm-hmm. Here, what uh, these great masters like uh, Tsongkhapa and Karma Chakme are doing is they are not mixing everything together in one stage of practice, but they're taking different traditional types of practices and having them in sequence each other. So that's not mixing it together into one soup. That's like having different courses in your meal. Sort of like starting your meal with borscht and then ending with a pizza. <laughs> so, for some people, maybe that is very appetizing. For other people, maybe not. <laughs> 
In any case, we have this uh, lineage and this uh, tradition. One can give various other examples, but I think that's enough. Examples of combining different uh, practices and stages. But uh, in any case, let's turn to our text. And what I thought to do is just give a brief overview of the text without going through it line by line. I myself have uh, received teachings on this four times, once from Geshe Ngaon Targye, twice from His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and once from Serkong Rinpoche. So I will try to explain it to the best of my understanding, which of course is not that great. The Pension Lama begins in the traditional way of respectfully paying homage to Mahamudra and to his gurus. And then he says what he's going to write about. This is the traditional standard way in which any text begins. And then he uh, says that he's going to divide his discussion into standard way in which almost everything is divided, the preparatory practices, the actual methods, and the concluding procedures. And as for the preparatory practices, this is, I think, important for us to understand as preparation rather than preliminary. Well, I'm translating Andro, but I am translating it as preparation rather than preliminary. If we say preliminary, I don't know about the connotation of the Russian words, but in English, you hear preliminary and then people think, I don't need the preliminaries, I'm advanced already, you know, let's skip that, that's boring, that's not interesting. Mm-hmm. 
давайте не перерезать русские все эти нюансы, но так или иначе в английском, когда человек слышит preliminary, как это принято переводить с тибетского нюанса, он говорит, да я довольно продвинутый практикующий, чему мне такие виды подготовительные практики. И коннотации такой не возникает, такой реакции при слове подготовительные. Да? Mm. Preliminary just means what you do first and doesn't give very much uh, mm. preliminary. Uh, means what you do first and not so important. В английском preliminary или предварительные, предваряющие практики имеют такой оттенок чего-то предыдущего перед чем-то настоящим и, собственно, чем-то неважным, малозначительным подготовительным шагом. But preparation has a different connotation. Think of the example of nomads living in tents who are about to go on a caravan journey. Well, in order to go on your caravan journey, you have to prepare, which means you have to pack up the tents. You cannot go on the journey unless you prepare by packing the tents, loading the yaks, and then away you go. И в то же самое время термин подготовительные практики имеет более такую серьезную коннотацию, более серьезное звучание, нежели предварительное. Предварительное это что-то малозначительное, что можно перескочить. Тогда как подготовительные практики звучат солидно, и подумайте о примере с намадами, с кочевниками тибетскими, которые перед тем, как отправятся в какой-то переход, пакуют свои юрты, набичивают своих дьяков, там заготавливают провиант и так далее, а серьезные какие-то подготовительные шаги So that's very different than a preliminary like at a movie theater where you have advertisement as the preliminary and previews of coming attractions as your preliminary before the actual main movie, which obviously you can skip. So a very different connotation. <laughs> Колорит. Если мы говорим предварительное, это как нечто, то, что мы видим в кино, когда мы приходим, и перед нами крутят рекламу перед фильмом, или показывают какие-то тизеры, да, или трейлеры, там наиболее такие увлекательные моменты предыдущего кино, или какого-то иного кино. По сути, все это можно пропустить, а вот настоящая эта часть, это, собственно, просмотр фильма. Такая вот коннотация у слова preliminary или предварительное. So when we read about and learn about what in Tibetan is called Ngundro, We really need to keep the image in our mind of the yak caravan and not the image of the movie theater advertisement. Именно картину упаковки большого каравана, подготовки к отправлению большого каравана, нежели And it's quite interesting how the uh, terminology that uh, the first pension lama uses here is uh, very reminiscent of caravans. Because he says that for getting into these teachings, the entrance way, like entrance way into a tent, is taking refuge, or what I call safe direction, and then the central tent pole for putting up the tent 
is bodhicitta. So that means that these two are absolutely essential for being able to practice this Mahamudra. Now, this is probably not the time or occasion to go into a detailed discussion of safe direction or refuge and bodhicitta. Statement like that, of course, is always followed with but. <laughs> In brief, When we talk about what's usually translated as refuge, we're talking about putting a certain direction in our life. It's a very active process, not passive. And that direction is indicated by the Dharma Jewel. Which is the what Buddha taught us the third and fourth noble truths. We're talking about the true stopping of obscurations, true stopping of all the garbage problems and the causes of the problems on the mental continuums of those who have had non-conceptual cognition avoidance all the way up to Buddhas. And the true paths, actually the true pathways of mind, they are the minds, the understanding that brings about that stopping and which is the result of the stopping. That lead to the true stopping and that are the result of the true stopping. So, that's referring to the 
on an uninterrupted path and the path of liberation of, on each of the Bhumis. Actually, for those who know technical details, and liberation, liberated path. It's the the, unliber- the uninterrupted path. It's the understanding of voidness that will get rid of a portion of junk that you have to get rid of, and then that's the uninterrupted path. And then the liberated path is the mind that's free of that junk. Um, Always two steps. And the Buddha jewel are those who have this in full, the true stoppings and the true paths in full, and the Sangha jewel are those who have it in part. Those are the Aryas. They have a little bit of this, but not the whole thing. Now, you think about that, that has a profound connection with Mahamudra. Because it's absolutely essential to really understand the nature of the mind in order to be convinced that it's possible to get rid of all the junk, all the problems and causes of problems that are on the mental continuum, and that it's possible to develop the antidote that will get rid of it. And the state of mind that will result from that. So, of course, there are two ways of developing this. First way would be just to, on the basis of inspiration from various uh, teachers, the basis of many emotional states and so on, that we want to put this direction in our life because we're convinced that, okay, it's at least going to help us somewhat to go in this direction. Uh, 
и вера в то, что уж, по крайней мере, это нам не навредит, и как-то нам поможет, и на таком эмоциональном порыве мы устремляемся к этим целям. And once we're going in this direction, at least we know what we're heading for, then in order to really have that firm, we're going to really need to work very hard to really understand and recognize the nature of the mind so that we're really convinced that it's possible that what we're aiming for, the direction we're going in is not just some fantasy, but it's actually possible. After all, how do we know that there was a Buddha? How do we know that it's possible to become a Buddha? How do we know? Is it just a nice fairy tale? Are we aiming to become Santa Claus or what? <laughs> so it's only when we really understand the nature of the mind that our refuge, the safe direction, will be really firm. But as a preparation for being able to really investigate the nature of the mind, we would need to be wanting to go in that direction that will what should we say, that has that intimate connection with the nature of the mind, the direction of wanting to achieve, I mean, the direction that's indicated by the true stoppings and the true pathway minds. So the entrance way to get into the tent is at least going in that direction of working with the mind. And as I said very clearly in the teachings, the actions of our speech and body are derivative from actions of the mind. So one way of practice is first to put that direction in our life for whatever reason, you know, we don't want things to get worse, we have uh, confidence that, you know, the Buddhists can lead us in that way and so on. So we do that first and then work to gain the understanding of the mind, or the other way would be to get some understanding of the mind first and then when we're a little bit convinced that uh, this is, you know, this whole Buddhist trip is possible, then put this direction in our life. So there's two ways. Способ вхождения в буддийское учение, принятие прибежища, когда на каком-то эмоциональном импульсе, желании изменить свою жизнь, доверие, каком-то стремлении к чему-то, так сказать, 
буддийским каким-то идеалом, мы входим на этот путь и затем уже утверждаемся в понимании природы собственного ума. Другим же путем является другой, когда является, так сказать, отличный от него, когда сначала мы пытаемся и каким-то образом разбираемся в природе собственного ума, в том, что такое наш ум, как он функционирует, обретаем некую уверенность и понимание того, что это буддийский пункт, он действительно действенен, он, он реален, и затем мы понимаем прибежище уже осознанно и движемся в этом направлении. As His Holiness the Dalai Lama explains, for those of us who are more emotionally and devotionally inclined, the first style is more suitable, that first we go in this direction, you know, motivated by emotion and devotion, and then try to get the understanding, or for those who are more intellectually inclined, first try to get some intellectual understanding of the possibility of going in this direction, and then one puts this direction in one's life firmly. Практикам преданности следует следовать первым путем и затем уже разбираться, более сказать, анализировать и укрепляться по пониманию природы ума. Для тех же, кому свойственен более интеллектуальный подход, аналитический подход, подход рассудочный, следует прежде разобраться во всех положениях, утвердиться в понимании и затем уже через прибежище вступать на путь. But regardless of which way in which we practice, even if we're practicing the second way, it's not going to be the deepest understanding of mind and the possibility of getting rid of the obscurations or the garbage on the mind. It is a little bit of understanding, but in either way, this safe direction of going in this direction is absolutely essential preparation for being able to really now go deeply into trying to understand and recognize the nature of the mind. Okay, so now we're going in safe direction that gets us into the tent. Now, what is the central pole that's holding up the tent? It's bodhicitta. What does the central pole of a tent do? It gives the strength for the whole tent to stay there and stay up and not fall down. So, Bodhicitta gives us that strength to follow the path and follow the path all the way. Bodhicitta 
не отступать этого пути, не разворачиваться назад и идти вперед. Without it, our whole practice of Mahamudra is likely to fall down. Therefore, we need to understand what actually bodhicitta means. And that's not so easy. First of all, we need to think of everybody, and that means everybody. <laughs> and we have, you know, compassion, we think of their suffering, we want them to overcome their suffering, take responsibility to help them overcome that suffering, and we see that the only way to actually be able to do that is if we ourselves become Buddhas. <laughs> Take the responsibility, then the only way to help them is to actually achieve enlightenment. So, we are thinking on the most grand, extensive scale possible. Enlightenment means a mind that encompasses everybody and everything. And we want to help everybody, so that encompasses you know, every being that exists. And an enlightened mind is the end point of the Dharma refuge has the full elimination of both the emotional and cognitive obscurations and has all the possible good qualities that one could have that a mind could have mental continuum could have so we are not only going in a direction that's indicated by this, but now we want to actually achieve this type of mind ourselves. Refuge 
or safe direction doesn't mean necessarily going to all the way to the end of, the, of this path to enlightenment. It could be going just as far as liberation. But now with bodhicitta, we want to go all the way to the end. Now, if we are aiming for a state in which mind has its fullest capacities and is totally free of all obscuration and is totally capable of everything that a mind is capable of, if that's now our aim, then that really can understand is a preparation. I mean, we need that in order to be able to, with Mahamudra practice, understand and recognize and realize this nature of the mind. And so, with bodhicitta, what we are aiming for is our own future enlightenment, which has not yet happened, but which definitely can happen. We're not aiming for enlightenment in general. We're not aiming for Buddha's enlightenment. That was Buddha Shakyamuni's enlightenment. We're aiming for our own enlightenment. But our own enlightenment doesn't exist now, does it? So what are we aiming for? We're aiming for something that doesn't exist. That's pretty weird. Well, then one has to start thinking very deeply about <laughs> things that have not yet happened. Do they have any type of existence at all? I am aiming for my 70th birthday. My 70th birthday doesn't exist yet, does it? Hasn't happened yet. But it's not a total fantasy, it's something that can happen. On what basis can it happen? It can happen on the basis of now I am 
personally, I'm 61, and I'm getting older and getting closer to that 70th birthday every day. Now, unless I die before then, then I can reach that 70th birthday, that not yet happening 70th birthday will be a presently, will become a presently happening 70th birthday. Just on the basis of the fact that I am aging, that is a natural quality of my mental continuum. It's going on from moment to moment. And actually I don't have to put in any effort in order to reach my 70th birthday. It will happen naturally. Now, now, what about my not yet happening enlightenment? Is it the same as my 70th birthday? My not yet happening 70th birthday? Well, yes and no. First of all, there is a basis, a valid basis for my not yet happening enlightenment. This is known as Buddha nature, the actual nature of my mind, both my mental continuum, both its conventional and deepest nature. On the basis of that Buddha nature, I can become enlightened. Just as on the basis of the fact that my mental continuum continues, I can become older and reach my 70th birthday. So on the fact that conventionally the mind is capable of knowing anything, yeah, it's capable of knowing things, isn't it? And on the basis of the fact that the mind doesn't exist in any impossible ways, so it is free of all this junk. It's possible to achieve total true stopping of all the junk and a total understanding of everything. Now, 
However, it doesn't require any extra effort for me to reach my 70th birthday. It will just happen naturally unless I die before then. It's not the same with reaching enlightenment. We're going to have to put in a tremendous amount of effort and hard work to reach that enlightenment. And although death could prevent me from reaching my 70th birthday, and I would never reach it in this lifetime, it's not quite the same with bodhicitta. И коль скоро смерть может прервать мое продвижение к 70-летию, и я могу не достичь его в этой жизни, с бодхичиттой ситуация обстоит несколько иначе. You see, something could prevent me from reaching my 70th birthday in any lifetime. I could never reach my 70th birthday in any lifetime. Whereas with bodhicitta, with reaching enlightenment, certain obstacles might come up preventing us in this lifetime from achieving it, but there's nothing that could prevent it completely. So if we've really understood the nature of the mind, and if we've really understood the third and fourth noble truths, then we will be convinced that it's actually possible to achieve enlightenment. It's possible for me to achieve enlightenment. Если мы действительно разберемся с природой нашего ума, если мы поймем, что такое природа нашего ума, если мы разберемся детально с тем, что такое третья и четвертая благородная истина, то мы поймем, что достижение просветления для нас, для меня, безусловно, возможно. And it's possible for everybody to achieve enlightenment, including the mosquito buzzing around my head that kept me awake last night. И, безусловно, возможно, оно для всех, без исключения живых существ, включая и того комара, который жужжал вокруг моей головы прошлой ночью, не давая мне After all, if we are aiming to lead everybody to enlightenment, we need to be convinced that everybody can actually achieve enlightenment. So, we can see from this that bodhicitta is a very profound topic just to understand what is bodhicitta. We are, first of all, aiming to benefit everybody to bring them to enlightenment. And then we're focused on our own future enlightenment which has not yet happened but we understand it can happen on the basis of our Buddha nature. And we're working to achieve that 
to make that attainment actually a presently happening attainment in order to then benefit everybody. So it is with this thinking that in the beginning of our class when we took safe direction or refuge we thought in terms of the those who have actually achieved enlightenment that's the result we think in terms of our own future enlightenment that we're aiming for achieving with bodhicitta and respect to that it's the path that we're going to follow to that result and we prostrate and show respect to our own Buddha nature which is the basis which will allow us to reach you know, with bodhicitta to work toward our future enlightenment so that we ourselves become a Buddha выстраивали в начале наших занятий, когда мы выражали почтение по отношению к трем факторам, к буддам, к определенным существам, которые являются плодом или целью, то есть пунктом назначения нашей практики, к тому пути, по которому следуя, по которому мы сможем потечить, да, следуя которым мы сможем достичь конечного пути, и к той, к тому базису, к той основе, которая присутствует во всех нас, Mm-hmm. We can see from this discussion that safe direction and bodhicitta have a very intimate relationship with Mahamudra meditation for understanding the nature of the mind. And if we have, at least on an emotional and devotional level, the safe direction in bodhicitta, that is the preparation, we've packed our bags, we have all the stuff that we're going to need along the way in order to actually do this meditation and succeed in it. Если хотя бы на эмоциональном уровне, на уровне преемности такого включения, мы обладаем прибежищем и мы обладаем чистой, то есть на таком начальном эмоциональном уровне, то это значит уже, что мы хорошо упакованы, что у нас есть за плечами рюкзак, который позволит нам, экипировка, которая позволит нам пройти этот путь этой медитации для духовной практики и привести к физиологическим завершениям. We've set up the central pole so the tent will be stable and now we can practice in that tent. We can live in the tent. And the pension lama says, do not have these merely by word, be words from your mouth. In other words, feel this sincerely from your heart. И далее Панчин Рама говорит о том, что не допускайте ситуации, когда все это будет лишь пустыми словами, цветающими с вашего языка, но это должны быть действительно ваши прочувствованные мысли и эмоции. Then Panchen Lama says to actually be able to see the actual nature of the mind, we need to build up the two, I call them the networks, sometimes they're called collections, a network of 
positive force and deep awareness sometimes called collection of merit and collection of wisdom or insight These are not collections in the sense of a collection of stamps. But what we're doing is, on the one hand, meditating on bodhicitta and compassion and actually helping people, which builds up more and more positive force or energy, and all of that force or energy networks with each other and gets stronger and stronger. And we're studying and meditating more and more on voidness and all our understanding and everything that we learn networks together, so it gets stronger and stronger. So we have this great strength from uh, compassion and love and bodhicitta. And we're working to build up these two networks to strengthen them more and more. And it's like putting energy into a system, to an organic system. Now, we can think of this in terms of an analogy with water. If you put enough energy into the water, then all of a sudden it will reach a critical phase point in which it will change and it will rearrange itself and change into steam. So, similarly, if we build up these two networks, get more and more positive force, more and more understanding, eventually our whole system will blip, rearrange, and we will gain you know, the inside of Mahamudra will eventually become an Arya, a non-conceptual cognition of voidness of the mind. Mm-hmm. 
постигнем Махамудру, мы станем существами Ария, то есть постигнем прямого непосредственного достижения пустотности. So we need to put a lot of energy into our system. And in addition, we need to purify ourselves of mental obstacles or obscurations. Now, of course, the only thing that will really get rid of the mental obscurations is the non-conceptual cognition of voidness. Hmm. Of course, you see, we have a tremendous amount of uh, potential for causing more problems and having emotional disturbances and all these sort of things. There's a lot of potential for that from our previous behavior. Поскольку необходимо помнить, что у нас весьма и весьма сильна инерция, потенциал возобновления функционирования в нашем врачебном состоянии сознания из бесчисленной множества жизней, которые мы уже прожили и привыкли. And what will activate those potentials? What is it that will activate it is our, well, very complicated, but to put it in those simple terms, it's basically our ignorance, our unawareness, our confusion. So if we gain the non-conceptual cognition of voidness and are able to stay with it all the time, then there's nothing that will activate these potentials. So if there's nothing that can activate these potentials, there aren't any potentials anymore. Potential, uh, we can only talk about a potential on the basis of a future ripening of the potential. There's no future ripening of it, there's no potential. Potential for something only exists relative to that something that it is a potential for being actually able, possible to happen. So that's the only thing that actually is going to purify all these karmic um, aftermath and potentials and so on. It's this non-conceptual cognition of voidness and staying with it all the time. Mm-hmm. 
это именно прямое неопоследованное постижение способности, как постижение которого мы стремимся. И умение пребывать, иногда не расставаться. Recitation of a hundred syllable mantra of Vajrasattva, which is what we do at this stage of our practice as a preparation, is going to rid ourselves of all these obscurations forever, the way that the understanding of voidness will do. Подготовительных практик способна окончательно и навсегда очистить нас, а наш ум от этих отпечатков или потенциалов созревания будущих проблем. Doing the Vajrasattva practice and doing it perfectly, of course, is like washing our hands. Our hands are clean after we wash our hands, but that doesn't mean that they're never going to get dirty again. Практики, очистительные практики Ваджарасатвы с начитыванием стослоговой мантры, естественно, при условии, что практика эта выполняется корректно, подобно мытью рук. Мы вымыли руки, они совершенно чисты. Но руки у нас остаются, и, безусловно, когда-то они снова станут грязными. But we want to wash them <laughs> so, that, so that we can do something very delicate with them, like a, you know, a brain surgeon or something like that. So as a preparation for doing an operation on the brain, We wash our hands. So similarly, well, you get all the training, you know, in medical school. So similarly, to do this operation on our minds, to try to understand the nature of the minds, we need to build up a lot of force. So here we do, building up the two networks. We have to have our motivation, bodhicitta, and so on. We have to actually get into, you know, this whole study and practice and we need to wash our hands. So we need to do some purification practice like Vajrasattva. И подобно тому, как хирург готовит к операции и изучает долгие годы дисциплины в институте, тренируется, тренируется в, уже, в технике оперирования, моет руки перед операцией, так и мы, приступая к работе над своим умом, операция над мозгом, моем руки. Этому предшествовали долгие годы обучения, когда мы накапливали два вида накоплений, мы собирали благой потенциал эмоциональной подключительности, страдания любви, мы накапливали знания, постижение понимания, посредством накопления мудрости, вооруженные ими, мы моем руки, посредством выполнения практики возрастата и приступаем к этой работе над собственным сознанием, собственным умом. And then, when we've done this, the final step of our preparation is to make heartfelt requests to our root guru inseparable from all the Buddhas of the three times. Now, What in the world is going on here with making requests? Uh, 
And what are we doing? Saying, oh, Guru, pretty, pretty, please. Let me see the nature of my mind. I will, you know, make offerings to you every day. Please, let me see it. Yeah, I'll be a good boy, I'll be a good girl. Yeah, just let me see the nature of my mind. <laughs> well, I don't think that it is such a childish practice as that. So, what actually are we talking about here in terms of making requests? Because this is emphasized in so many teachings, so many teachings. What we are doing is basically opening ourselves up for inspiration. This idea of opening up is very key here, it's very central. We opened up to the vastness of all beings and the vastness of uh, well, let's start again. We opened up to Buddha Dharma and Sangha, that uh, safe direction in life. Rather than going nowhere or going in a negative direction in our life, now we've opened up to going in some positive direction. Then we've opened up to the vastness of all beings and the vastness of the enlightened state of the mind when we have developed bodhicitta. We have the enlightened state. And we've opened up to the vastness of intensity of compassion for everybody. And in doing this purification with Vajrasattva, for example, we, when they talk about confession, the word for that literally is opening up. And so it's like the same word for, you know, when you cut a, a piece of wood and you split it open with an axe. So we want to open up, you know, get rid of all the, you know, I admit all the negative things that I've done and I open up and I want to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. 
некое такое действие, когда мы открываемся всем своим прегрешением, всему, что мы совершали, так сказать, мы все это декларируем и очищаемся от этого. Это один из аспектов практики очищения. And now what we want to do is to open up as well to inspiration from our spiritual teacher. In order to see the nature of the mind, both conventional and deepest nature of the mind, mind has to be totally, totally open. Для того, чтобы постичь природу своего ума, как его относительную поверхностную природу, как его глубинную природу, необходимо, чтобы ум наш был совершенно и полностью открыт. We're just a little bit closed. There's no way that we're going to actually see the nature of the mind. Если он будет хоть чуть-чуть закрыт, то мы лишим себя шанса увидеть его подлинную природу. So the more and more open we are in all these various dimensions that we've just mentioned, the more prepared we are for success in this practice. And we need to also make the mind more and more intense. Intense is like instead of a 20 watt light bulb, a 200 watt light bulb. I think the light bulb is a good example here. We want to be able to see the nature of the mind. And so we have to speak about the mind that is looking at the nature of the mind and the, mi- and the nature of the mind that is being seen. The more intense the mind as an object is, the easier it will be to see it. No, the more intense the mind as an object is, it'll be easier to see it, and the more intense the mind that is the subject that's doing it is, it also will be easier to see it. You need both the mind as the object and as the subject to be intense. Think of the example of the light bulb. The stronger the light bulb is, the easier it will be able, it will be to the light bulb will be more let's try this the English is a little bit tricky here the stronger the intensity of the light bulb on the one hand the more visible the light bulb will be and on the other hand we will be more able to see the light bulb uh-huh. Итак, чем интенсивнее лампа, то есть чем у нее выше 
что это называется, напряжение, что сила. А, мощность, да? Мощность. А, тем, да, тем более, тем лучше, более видимо будет эта лампа. И в то же самое время, тем лучше будем видеть мы эту лампу. То есть она будет субъектно, объектно. Тем более, лучше надо видеть как лампа, и тем лучше мы будем видеть ее. Если мы делаем как объект субъект деления. Okay, so, like that, we want to get the mind as intensive, uh, as intense as possible, because then we will have a, a mind for looking at the nature of the mind will be more intense and strong, and what we're looking at will be more intense and strong. Поэтому мы стремимся повысить мощность или интенсивность нашего ума, повысить мощность его восприятия как субъекта, смотрящего на природу ума, и высветить ясно эту природу ума, проявляющую объектом. So, of course, we have to get a lot of electricity into the light bulb, so we have to build up these networks, and of course we have to clean the light bulb, so we have to do the purification. And we have to plug the light bulb into the electricity source, so we need safe direction, we need bodhicitta. And then, what we want to, you know, for increasing the intensity here, we make these requests. So, what we want is to open up now to the inspiration of our spiritual teacher. You know, we already have great intensity from compassion and bodhicitta. You know, I really have to help everybody. Итак, у нас уже достаточно этой мощи, это интенсивность делает наши, наши медитации сострадания, мысли о всех живых существах, стремление им помочь. And the root teacher, the root guru is talking about here, is the one that acts as a root, not who acts as the seed that starts the plant to grow, but acts as the root from which you get the root of a plant is what the plant gets its strength from. So the root guru is the one that gives that's the most inspiring to us, gives the most strength to us. Someone, for many of us it will be His Holiness the Dalai Lama. We may never have personal, individual contact with him, yet gives us tremendous inspiration. And we see the Guru, our root Guru, as inseparable from all the Buddhas. 
It says right here in the text. Now, now what does that mean? Certainly doesn't mean literally that our teacher is a Buddha in you know the full technical sense and can multiply in 20 billion forms and walk through walls and knows the telephone number of everybody on the planet. <laughs> But what it's talking about is seeing Buddha nature in the spiritual teacher and seeing through the inspiration of the spiritual teacher what can be a Buddha and that we have that same thing. We see the basis, what we're seeing in the Guru as the Buddha, is the Buddha nature of the teacher. We see in our Guru, the Guru's Buddha nature. And that inspires us to be, when we talk in Guru Yoga, to be inseparable from our Guru. That Buddha nature, just as the Buddha nature is so obvious in our teacher, in terms of accomplishments of the teacher and the inspiration and so on, that likewise, I have Buddha nature too. In other words, in seeing the Buddha nature of the teacher, uh, then we are, and, and when we say, you know, the teacher is a Buddha, giving the name of the result to the cause. That on one level we can see an ordinary person, on another level equally valid, a Buddha. Basis of Buddha nature, one is an ordinary being. The basis of Buddha nature, one is a Buddha. On the basis of Buddha nature, we are an ordinary being. On the basis of Buddha nature, we are a Buddha. This is what in the Sakya system is called the inseparability of samsara and nirvana. Mm. And so, it doesn't mean literally that the Guru is a Buddha. But by understanding Buddha nature, which of course is not so easy, 
But by understanding Buddha nature and seeing it more easily in the teacher, then we can see it in ourselves. And that is really strong opening up for being able to see the nature of the mind. Gampopa said when he realized the inseparability of his mind and his root guru, Milarepa, he realized Mahamudra. Now this has to do with this whole process of making requests on the basis of understanding Buddha nature, gaining inspiration. And inspiration is not a disturbing emotional state. If on the basis of thinking of our guru, we get really emotionally unstable, and oh, my guru is crying and all this sort of stuff, that is not, what should we say, proper, stable inspiration. It's unstable. When we speak about the word that's usually translated not so nicely as faith, is a type of confident belief. One of these, is, of the three kinds, is the clear-minded belief. In other words, the type of belief that your guru, you know, has put in nature and all the good qualities and so on, that clears the mind of disturbing emotions. So we're not in love with our guru. That's not the emotion we're talking about here. But this inspiration uplifts us. The word for inspiration, chinlap, chingilap, is uh, a waves of brightening. This is the Tibetan term. The Sanskrit term arishtana just means uplifting. No, Blessing is how it's often translated, but I think that is bringing in uh, a system of other, you know, religious beliefs that really are irrelevant here. Mm-hmm. 
принимающий светлый волн. Примерно такая коннотация этимологического этого термина на тибетском. На санскрите Адиштана. Адиштана means to uplift. Также обозначает какое-то приподнимание, что-то подъем. Да? То есть вот такая коннотация у этого термина и в тибетском, и в санскрите. So, thinking of, how do we gain inspiration? We think of the Guru's good qualities and we think of the kindness of the Guru. Kindness toward everybody, kindness specifically toward us. And that inspires a strong emotional state, which is a stable state, not a disturbing state. And this really adds energy to the mind, both as a subject and as an object. And opens us up even further. And then, final step is that we imagine our root guru coming to the crown of our heads and then dissolving into us, and we become one. And that doesn't literally mean that now we become a clone of our teacher and, you know, have all the conventional habits of the teacher, you know, eating the same kind of food and wearing the same clothes and so on. But we understand that the nature of the Buddha nature of the Guru, the Buddha nature of myself are well, it's individual. My Buddha nature isn't your individual, your Buddha nature, my nose isn't your nose, but they are the same type of thing. They are equivalent. Equivalent is the word. And what is really important here is if we have this state of inspiration from the teacher, you know, strong, our heart is really moved by the teacher, then when the teacher dissolves into us, it's a very, very joyous, blissful state of mind that we have, and super intense. И плюс к этому, если преданность наша к учителю сильна, если мы действительно верим ему, относимся к нему преданно и позитивно, то растворение учителя в своем теле является действительно таким очень интенсивным эмоциональным переживанием. Blissful and very intense. Это действительно такое интенсивное, мощное переживание и сопряженное с таким блаженством, с радостью, удовольствием. 
It's not the same as visualizing an apple in front of us, and the apple comes to our head and dissolves in our heart. So what? You don't feel anything. <laughs> Unless you're really hungry. <laughs> Then you want it to dissolve in your stomach, not in your heart. <laughs> And not a visualized one. When we have done all of these preparation, preparatory practices of the safe direction, bodhicitta, building up the two networks, purification, request to the Guru, dissolving the Guru into us. Then our minds are in the most open and the most intense state which will then be the preparation for being having the most conducive mind as both an object and a subject for gaining the insight of Mahamudra. Now this is very important to really comprehend this really digest what that means. If we start to try to meditate on the nature of the mind, we just sort of sit down and start to do it. In the vast, vast majority of cases, our minds are not going to be terribly intense at all. Если мы просто будем начинать медитировать на природе нашего ума, сев, ничего не выполнив, то велика вероятность того, что ум наш не будет достаточно интенсивен, достаточно ясен и работоспособен в этом ключе. It's like we haven't sharpened the knife to be able to cut something. Подобно тому, как мы взяли совершенно тупой нож, никоим образом его не наточить, и пытаемся что-то резать. We have to sharpen the knife first. We have to get the mind in the proper state in order to then do the Mahamudra meditation. Once we have seen the nature of the mind, we're very, very familiar, yeah, then we can see it all the time. But when we still haven't achieved that, and we're trying really hard to be able to meditate on the nature of the mind, these preparation steps are essential. At least some level of them is a 
preparation for our practice. And in the words of the Pension Lama, do not have these merely be words from your mouth. That covers the preparation material, and then tomorrow we'll discuss the actual meditation practice. Do you have some questions? Uh, would you give us a long meditation? <laughs> 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 then say that again, please. Yeah, uh, would you or you will only describe how to do this. <laughs> hmm. So the, uh, you want to translate that? The question is, will I give a lung or uh, oral transmission to do the meditation tomorrow? That's a very interesting question. Because it gets into a whole discussion of what is a lung, an oral transmission. An oral transmission, according to my understanding, is of a text, not of a meditation. The custom arose in India from the time of the Buddha when nothing was written down for the first three and a half or four centuries after Buddha. None of his teachings were in written form. And the teachings were all transmitted orally. People had to memorize them and then recite them. So, in order to study the teachings, you needed to have somebody who had memorized them before them, before you, and listen to that person reciting it correctly, word for word, without any mistakes. In order to have the confidence, in one listen to this and have this transmission, in order to have the confidence that you got the words of the teachings correctly. 
в точности получили учение слово в слово, как оно было переподано. And if you listen to it often enough, or if you had a really good memory, you would be able to memorize it based on hearing other people recite it correctly. So it was very, very important. Otherwise, the texts got corrupted if people didn't remember them correctly and recite them correctly. And the custom continued even once the texts were written down. Now, the interesting thing here is that the person who gives an oral transmission of a text does not necessarily have to understand anything of the text that he or she is reciting. The only criterion is that they recite it correctly without making mistakes. So, I must say, I found this very surprising. But what I'm saying is based on what His Holiness the Dalai Lama told me personally. The situation arose in which, I'll tell you the story. It's interesting. There is uh, one of Tsongkhapa's most difficult texts called the uh, Interpretable and Definitive Meanings. Essence of interpretable and definitive excellent, excellent essence of no, that doesn't the essence of excellent or eloquent explanation of interpretable and definitive meanings. Anyway, it's Tsongkhapa's tremendous text on the Chittamatra, Svatantrika, and Prasangika systems. The Mahayana systems. It's probably Tsongkhapa's most difficult text. It's about 250 pages long. And my teacher, Sanchep Serkung Rebache, uh, he used to recite it from memory every day as part of his daily practice. He was one of the teachers of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. 
And there is a lineage of it from Tsongkhapa himself. But uh, Sirkin Rinpoche's father, who was Sirkin uh, Dorji Chang, was uh, probably the most accomplished yogi of his generation. And he had a vision of Tsongkhapa who gave him another transmission of the text an explanation. So, Sirkin Rinpoche had this special double lineage. And he never gave the oral transmission to His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. He said that he was waiting until he had something really special you know, about it, to be able to explain to His Holiness that His Holiness hadn't heard before, and so he was waiting. And before he was able to give it to His Holiness, he died. However, I had received the lung of this text from his holy, from certain Rinpoche. And it was a very special oral transmission because he did it from memory without looking at the text. Hmm? 250 pages. He recited it every day. It's part of his practice. At super speed. So, Sirkin Rinpoche's next reincarnation was found. And I'm as close to him, if not closer, than I was with the old one. He's 22 years old now. And when he was, I think, 19, must have been when he was around 19, he wanted very much this oral transmission. And so we looked and looked, and there was nobody who was still alive who had the oral transmission. Except me, and there were two other people present at the time, and Rinpoche wasn't interested in getting it from them. So he wanted me to give him the oral transmission. Now, I had never studied this text. And so I have no understanding at all of what's in the text. But Rinpoche was very insistent that I give it to him. So I asked His Holiness, 
the Dalai Lama, permission. What should I do? Since His Holiness the Dalai Lama supervises Sirka Rinpoche's education. And that's when His Holiness explained to me that it doesn't matter that I don't understand anything from the text. I received the actual oral transmission and I can give it back to Sirka Rinpoche. Since obviously he was very special and it was very important that he continue this lineage. So I practiced and practiced reciting, reading the text out loud until I could do it without making a complete idiot out of myself. Yeah, without it being just totally boring and a torture for Rebbe to listen to me. <laughs> and I went to Rebbe monastery and I gave him the oral transmission. Read the text to him out loud, basically. And that's it. That's what an oral transmission is. I was actually quite shocked that that was all that was involved. I had thought that the person who gave it had to really have, you know, total understanding and insight and all that sort of stuff in the text. You don't. So that's very different from giving ordination, you know, giving vows, and you have to have kept the vows purely, or giving an initiation, or things like that. It's a very different category. So, it's for an oral trans- transmission of a, or permission for a meditation that I, I don't know that there is such a thing. There are initiations for doing the Anutra Yoga Tantra level of practice of this. That's something different. So this can be done on a sutra level, and this text speaks about it on the sutra level. As for giving an oral transmission of the text, I don't happen to have the Tibetan text with me. If I did, I could read it to you out loud. I'd be happy to do that. I could read you my English translation, but I don't know that that would do very much for you. <laughs> but uh, anyway, 
That's it for oral transmission. I mean, the question, of course, is how useful is it nowadays? And that is a difficult question. From the traditional point of view, it's considered very important. I think it's important from the point of view of feeling part of a lineage, continuity, authenticity, and so on, of at least the material. But as I said, it doesn't necessarily imply that the person giving the transmission understands what they're saying. Although I would hope that most of the great masters who give these oral transmissions do understand what they are reciting, but it doesn't seem to be a prerequisite. For instance, the great lamas who gave oral transmissions to His Holiness the Dalai Lama, I would hope that they understood what they were saying, and I would assume they did. Hmm. Okay, so I'm sorry I took a lot of time with that question, but I think that's a, a, an important point in the whole trend of demystifying uh, Tibetan Buddhism, which I like to do, to bring it down to reality. So let's end today with a dedication. We think whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from this, may it act as a cause for actually being able to successfully do this type of practice to see the nature of the mind and to reach enlightenment through that for the benefit of all.